High Crimes in History is sponsored by Army Flashcards. Are you a soldier studying for ranger school, air assault, or basic training? Are you a civilian interested in educating yourself on the military profession? It can be hard to take that vast amount of information and condense it into a digestible study method, and you need to be able to take your learning on the go and into the field. That's where Army Flashcards comes in. Army Flashcards is a veteran-owned company that provides soldiers and leaders with the tools to master the basics of the military profession. Each specialized deck comes with 100 flashcards that help you practice anywhere, anytime, with simple, easy-to-use graphics and definitions. They're small enough to throw into a rucksack or a pocket, and sturdy enough to last in the field. Decks range from advanced marksmanship to army first aid, each one tailored to a specialization. I'm a civilian from a military family, and these have been amazing to brush up on my military knowledge. I remember learning hand signals as a kid, trying to pour over my dad's old manuals and getting frustrated. These flashcards have been the exact opposite experience. I pulled out the ones I didn't already know and kept the rest with me on some errands around town. While getting gas and waiting in line for a prescription, it didn't take me long to relearn some of the old ones and some new ones to boot. Like, I apparently didn't know they have hand signals for a nuclear attack. I also used some of the military symbols deck to study some of the unit icons I'd found on Vietnam battle maps but hadn't recognized before. I'd searched all over the internet and couldn't find them. With Army flashcards, it took me mere seconds to identify them. Army flashcards were useful for a civilian like me, just brushing up on my military education. For a veteran, former or deployed, they would be an invaluable resource. And best of all, they're analog. No worries about whether you have a cell signal or battery life. They're built to last so that you can trust that they'll be there when you need them the most. To get your flashcard deck, go to armyflashcards.com and order your deck today. That's armyflashcards.com. Today's episode is taken from the works The Diamond and the Vengeance by Jacques Pouchette, translated by James Baer, and Diamond and Vengeance, Dumas the Father, Napoleon, and the July Monarchy by V. N. Zemsov. Sometimes history and fiction blend so well together that it's hard to tell the difference between one and the other. Have you noticed that? Like history is one big game of two truths and a lie. That's the game where you tell three statements to someone else, two of which are true, one of which is a lie, and then they have to figure out which one is the lie. But of course, you tell them three statements that either sound all completely outlandish that none of them could be true, or you tell some really boring statements that then all of them must be true. History is a lot like trying to find the lie in between those two truths. And sometimes it's easy. Like, take something like Herodotus. He's widely considered the first historian, wrote the history of the Persian Wars, we've mentioned him before, but he often didn't mind inserting stuff into the record that obviously didn't exist. Like you'll be reading something like the Battle of Salamis, where things are pretty standard history, and then he'll talk about like a supernatural storm brought on by the gods that saved the city-state of Delphi. Probably not the gods sending some storm, right? And it makes it hard to trust Herodotus, then, because... You have to wonder if he's okay inserting a temple legend into the historical record, then what's he doing with all these, like, small details? But that's part of working in history that you just have to learn to accept. 
If Herodotus is one of the only accounts of the Battle of Salamis, well, pretty hard not to accept what he says until you can find sources that confirm or deny it. If that sounds trite, forgive me. It's one of those frustrating bits of history that we often have to deal with, sources ranging from perfect eyewitnesses to accounts that you can't trust farther than you can throw them. And it's doubly frustrating when they're like the only source you have on some history. But I've started to come around to another way of viewing historical accounts that can stand in conjunction with this attempt to figure out what's true. And that's figuring out how much an account, whether true or false, has shaped a culture. I first started thinking about this when reading American Indian history recently. Some tribal nations that are current today will give their account of their history pre-contact with the Europeans in a way that's more like Herodotus's The Histories, with what most people would call mythology mixed in with their factual history. And obviously that ruffles the feathers of a lot of European historians who focus on it as a science. But to the tribe's credit, they acknowledge that fact, but they also state that because these myths are so embedded into their cultural traditions, their cultural history, that to extract that part, to remove it and isolate it just the stuff that could be factually proven, that removes the part that makes their history their own. Now, whether you agree with that or not, you have to admit that there's a part of Western history that functions the exact same way. I started seeing it a lot in my own professional work, the, the side that's the non-podcast or the non-academic side, finding historical accounts that I look at and go, hey, wait a second, isn't this more myth, more fiction? I mean, I see it a lot in French history, for example. Um, in the 19th century, a lot of pseudo-biographies began to crop up. These biographies that are written by fiction writers, some of them pretty famous, claiming to be the biography of some famous person, like the biography of Napoleon Bonaparte or Marie Antoinette. And sometimes they're long lost, sometimes they're not. I mean, a case in point, the Sanson family, the executioners of Paris we did an episode on a while back, that had no less than three pseudo-biographies written in their name. And it can be confusing. I even found some English and American historians mixing up which one was their real memoir with the fake ones. So if you study this period of French history, you really have to look close at what's truth and what's fiction. Like that game, Two Truths and a Lie. But whether something is true or not doesn't matter if it affects the culture for years to come. Look no farther than the writings of Alexander Dumas. You've probably read one of his books or watched a film based on them. He's the French author of The Three Musketeers, The Nutcracker, The Man in the Iron Mask, and most famously, The Count of Monte Cristo. They're all classics of literature and theater, and they're all based on true stories, or at least that's what Dumas thought. But were they? Let's examine just one of them, the case of Pierre Picard, a Frenchman wrongfully committed to prison, and upon release, he tracked down the friends who had put him there in order to murder them. I bet you can't tell whether it's a truth or a lie, because honestly, neither can historians. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. Crimes in History is supported by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. 
when we first started podcasting, we found the world of sponsorships difficult to navigate. Finding brands we trust, sending emails, and hoping it made it to a physical person. It was tough. But with Podcorn, there is no middleman. Once you sign up, podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. We're a modest-sized podcast, and we've been able to find several sponsors for upcoming episodes with just a few clicks. So, if you're a podcaster or thinking about getting into podcasting, sign into Podcorn to start browsing sponsorship opportunities by clicking the link in our show notes. That's Podcorn. In 1828, the prefect of police in Paris received a strange letter from Father Duvernay, a French Catholic priest in London. It began, quote, Dear Monsieur Chief of Police, I have had the joy of hearing the heartfelt confession of a very guilty man. He believed, and I agree with him, that he felt it would be helpful to you to become acquainted with a series of abominable events in which he was both a victim and a perpetrator. If you follow the directions given at the end of the enclosed statement, you can locate the subterranean chamber where you will find the remains of the poor Picard, sad victim of this man's passions and hatred. God has forgiven him. Men in their pride want to outdo God and pursue vengeance, and that very vengeance does them in. End quote. The rest of the letter detailed a shocking series of murders. A few years later, the Paris police archivist Jacques Pouchet uncovered the tale from a dossier of 30 police reports, official notes, and interrogations. In his sixth volume, Memories from the Police Archives of Paris, he spun together those reports into a tragic, strange tale that seemed so unbelievable that, if it wasn't for his credibility, nobody would have believed it. And like all good tales, it started with a girl. In February 1807, in Paris, a young shoemaker by the name of Francois-Pierre Picard sat down at a diner with four of his friends. Matthew Lupion, the diner's owner, his friend Alou, Gervais Chabard, and Gilhelm Solari. He was practically jumping for joy as he told them he had just proposed to Marguerite de Figaro, a rich heiress, and she had said yes. But she is worth a hundred thousand francs, exclaimed Lupien. They were in love, he responded, and he would pay her back in happiness. But they jeered him. Surely he must have tricked her into marrying him in some way. No, he responded, nothing of the sort. He invited them to the wedding, taking place in two days, on February 17th. After he left, the friends talked with one another. Lupien proposed playing a little jest on their friend that would delay the wedding. He declared that when the police commissioner showed up for an appointment at the diner later that day, that he would accuse Picard of being a spy. Naturally, Picard would be interrogated and the wedding postponed, but only for a few days, they thought. Alou wanted nothing to do with the affair, but the other three decided to enact a plan. Once they told the commissioner, the police concluded that Picard must be an intermediary between England, who they were at war with, and the Midi. Early Monday morning, they stole Picard away in secret. No one knew where he went, and they assumed that he had disappeared on account of his impending marriage. It should also be noted right now that this was a common practice in Napoleon's France. The police had complete authorization to arrest anyone, regardless of social status, rank, even evidence, as long as it concerned state security. 
Those taken ended up in one of the eight prisons on the borders of the empire, typically in Italy. Years passed, and no one heard from him. But in April of 1814, an Italian priest rode by carriage to the Hotel Luxembourg in Nimes. He inquired as to the place where he could find a man by the name of Alou, the same friend Picard all those years ago, who had refused to join his friends in the cruel joke that led to Picard's imprisonment. Eventually, the priest found him. Alou had retired to his hometown of Nimes, where he and his friends had all grown up together. There, the priest told him of a chance meeting with a man in the prison of Chateau de Ouf in Naples, Italy. That prisoner was Pierre Picard. Alou was astonished and devastated. The Italian priest told Alou, quote, Until he died, one idea occupied his mind. He said that he would give up his place in paradise to the person who could name the person or persons who caused his arrest. And this idea also inspired Picard to the unusual dying request he made. But first of all, I must tell you that Picard rendered some valuable service to an Englishman, a prisoner like himself. This Englishman died and left Picard a diamond worth at least 50,000 francs." End quote. On his deathbed, Picard had bequeathed that diamond's location to the priest on one condition that he would find a witness who could give the priest the names of Picard's accusers. That way, the priest could go back to his tomb in Naples, inscribe them on a plaque, and place it with Picard's body so that he could forgive them. With that, the priest produced the diamond, a solitary gem embedded in a ring on his finger, to Alou and his wife. Alou trembled. He knew the names because he had refused to be a part of the practical joke they had invented all those years ago in the diner. But could he give up his friends? What's more, his own brother had just come into a fortune for saving a Danish nobleman. He was already jealous of his brother's good luck, and now here he was, his own good luck shining, there, waiting for him to take it. Before he made the decision, he found a jeweler, who not only confirmed the authenticity of the diamond, but seemed so excited that he immediately offered 63,000 francs in a country mansion with land for the diamond. Without hesitation, Alou confessed the names of his friends, Lupien, Chabard, and Solari. It turned out later that the jeweler had undercut him heavily. He sold the diamond for 102,000 francs, twice as much as the priest had related to him. The jeweler was then murdered, by whom is unclear, although Alou fled with his wife to Greece right afterwards, an unlikely coincidence of correlation. In 1815, a year later, an ugly man named Prosper came to a new café in Paris. The café was Lupien's. Two years after the disappearance of Picard, Lupien had married Marguerite and used the dowry from the marriage to buy a new café, a swank place. He had a beautiful 16-year-old daughter from his first marriage, who was also soon to be married, and a son as well. Everything was going well for them. For the man, Prosper, not so much. The stranger, who had been ruined by Napoleon's downfall, begged to become a waiter. Lupien accepted his services. Marguerite peered at Prosper. He seemed so familiar, like someone she had known before, but she could not piece it together. Days passed. Prosper worked at the restaurant. Two men showed up regularly at the bar, old friends of Lupien's, Solari and Chabard. They chatted and laughed about bygone memories together, 
But one day, Shabar did not show up. Nobody was surprised. He was probably drunk or in a fling, they joked. So Laurie went looking for him that night. At nine o'clock the next evening, he burst back into the cafe, distraught. He had found Shabard on the Bridge of the Arts early in the morning. He was dead, with a dagger in his heart. On the handle was inscribed a note. All it said was number one. The police looked, but could not find any leads. Then, a few weeks later, Lupian found his hunting dog dead, poisoned, the smell of bitter almonds emanating from the corpse. Two weeks after that, Marguerite's favorite parakeet was found dead, of the same poison. Lupian was furious, and the police were doing their damnedest to find the culprit, but alas, no one surfaced. Besides, Lupian didn't have time for this. His daughter was soon to be married, after all. The circumstances were a bit strange, sure, but the groom was a rich marquis from Corlano. He had met with his daughter a number of times, and when she admitted that they had slept together, Lupian was distressed. Well, then who would marry his daughter? They met with the older gentleman and pressured him to marry her, and surprisingly he agreed. He helped them arrange 150 of their family and friends for the ceremony. Quote, At the agreed-upon hour, the guests arrived, but the Marquis was nowhere to be found. Meanwhile, a letter arrived. The letter announced that the Marquis had to return to his chateau on the orders of the king. He apologized for being late and asked that everyone join him when he would return to his wife's side at ten o'clock that evening. The guests feasted on the dinner, but without the usual bridegroom. This put the bride in a bad mood because people were saying how important the man must have been to be called away by the king himself on his wedding day. The two main courses were enjoyed by all. During dessert, a waiter placed a letter at the place of every guest. This letter told them that the husband was a convict who had escaped from the galleys. Now he had taken flight again. End quote. What a scandal! How could anyone have guessed such a possibility, especially since no galley slave could ever have made such a fortune? If that wasn't enough for them, four days later, the Lupians came back from an afternoon in the countryside to find their cafe in ashes. A fire had broken out in the apartment above where they lived. The owner of the building sued Lupian for damages. They scraped together what remained of their finances and opened a new, but small, café on the Rue Saint-Antoine. Prosper continued to work at the café, and Solari continued to come to the new establishment until one day he did not show. He had died from convulsions. His doctor believed it was poison, and when the coffin was displayed, someone left a note on it with only two words, number two. Misfortune compounded on misfortune. His son, in a drunken stupor, had broken into a store to steal some liquor with his friends and was caught and sentenced to 20 years in prison. They had been tipped off by somebody beforehand. His wife died soon thereafter without any children, which meant that what was left of her dowry was returned to her family. Lupian and his daughter were penniless overnight. Desperate, he tried to turn to his friends, but most had abandoned him after the scandalous marriage, never mind the many calamities that had marked him as bad luck. But Prosper had remained. Prosper offered his savings to the daughter, enough to keep them afloat for a while longer, on one condition. She would sleep with him. She accepted for the sake of her father. Lupian's downfall was almost complete, but it was not yet finished. Soon after, late in the evening, in Tuileries, a public garden in Paris, 
As he walked wallowing in total despair, a masked man stepped from the shadows in front of him. Lupian, he cried, do you remember 1807? Why, said Lupian, do you remember the crime that you committed that year? A crime? Yes, an infamous crime. Out of jealousy, you sent your friend Picard to the dungeon. Do you remember? Ah, Lupian cried. God has severely punished me for it. No, said the stranger. It was Picard himself who did it. It was he who, to satisfy his vengeance, stabbed Shabard on the Bridge of the Arts, poisoned Solari, gave your daughter a criminal for a husband, and orchestrated the intrigue that your son fell into. His hand killed your dog and your wife's parakeet. His hand burned down your house and stirred up the looters. He is ultimately the one who caused your wife to die of unhappiness and who made your daughter a concubine. Do you realize that your waiter Prosper was none other than Picard? And do you realize that at this very moment he is going to fasten on you a sign that says number three? And with that, Picard's hand flashed, and Lupian fell to the ground, dead, with a dagger in his heart. Picard had orchestrated the death of all three former friends. He had beaten them. And then he lurched to the ground. A man had attacked him from behind, was tying him up. A gag was forced into his mouth, tied tightly. His vision went black as something was thrown over his head. He felt himself thrown over the man's shoulders, carried some distance as he fought his bonds. Eventually, his struggling ceased. The next he saw, he was in a dank room, the air thick and heavy, with one kitchen lamp illuminating the space. A man stood in the gloom, too dark to see. The man stated, quote, And so, Picard, what name are you using this time? Are you using the name your father gave you? Are you using the name that you used when you left Finistrel prison? Or are you the Abbe Baldini? Or the waiter Prosper? Hasn't your clever mind given you a fifth name? No doubt it has, for revenge seems nothing but a game to you. But I tell you, it is more. It is a brutal mania for you to see the horror of your own condition. If you had not sold your soul to a demon, you sacrificed the last ten years of your life to three wretched men you should have allowed to live. You have committed horrible crimes. You have lost yourself forever, and you have dragged me into the abyss. End quote. You, who, who are you? The man replied, I am your accomplice, a scoundrel who for some gold sold you the lives of my friends. Your gold was fatal to me. The greed you set on fire in my soul is not yet put out. The thirst for riches made me uncontrollable and guilt-ridden. I killed everyone who wronged me, so I had to flee with my wife, and she died in exile. As for me, I was arrested, judged, and condemned to the galleys. I suffered the pillory and the branding iron. I dragged the ball and chain. Finally, I had my chance to escape, and I wanted to find and punish this Abbe Baldini, this Italian priest, who had found and punished others so well. It was Alou. He had tracked Picard from Naples, and realized that Picard's tomb was not there, that in fact this Italian priest he had met so long ago had been Picard in disguise. Once the murders of his friends began, he found out about their deaths, came to warn Lupien, and that very evening had gone to the café to reveal Picard's existence. But Picard had found Lupien first. Even so, Alou would have his revenge. 
He chained Picard to the wall and gave him an ultimatum. Picard would receive food and water if he would pay for it. Picard protested, but Alou pressed him. Picard, he stated, was worth 16 million francs now. Of course he could afford it. In fact, he gave him an exact number, 26,000 francs for each day of food and water. Picard could last some time for that. But Picard refused. He understood that he would die regardless. He lasted two nights and a day. By the morning of the second day, he was too weak to fight back. Alou realized he would never get a single franc from Picard, and in a rage, he set upon the chained man, strangling him, stabbing his eyes out with a knife, and slicing open his chest. Then he left the room, a basement of a dilapidated building in Paris, leaving Picard's corpse behind. Alou fled to England and continued to search for Picard's hidden wealth, but never found it. It was not until he confessed to the priest that the police ever even found Picard's body. He also disclosed two addresses where Picard had lived under assumed names. But how, you're wondering, did Picard ever escape? How did Alou track him down? That's where the unknowns really lie. I've seen people attribute Alou's confession that he believed he had heard of Picard's time in prison from the voice of God, but nothing in the original text suggests that, except for like a single phrase that Alou utters to Picard, quote, How did I find out? Neither you nor the Pope himself will be able to get that secret from me. End quote. Not exactly a very clear statement of hearing the voice of God. Pouchet, the archivist who writes down this entire scene, relates what he learned from the dossier and Alou's confession. From his details, after Picard's arrest, he had been imprisoned in the Chateau de Finistrel in the Italian Alps for seven years. During that time, he was imprisoned with a priest from Milan. The priest had been abandoned by his family. To make sure that they would never get his coin, he had taken all of his money that he had deposited in the Bank of England and of Hamburg, sold his lands, and deposited it all in a bank in Amsterdam. While he was in prison, it had been accumulating interest, which is how Picard was able to be so rich. When the priest died, his inheritance was left to Picard. After the fall of Napoleon's government in 1814, these prisoners were released, and Picard was released at the age of 34. He went and uncovered this inheritance, including some of it secreted away. He invested it, building it even more, and then began his revenge. Now, if this whole incident sounds familiar... That's because it's the basis of one of the most famous French novels in literature, The Count of Monte Cristo. Alexandre Dumas had read about Picard and Alou in a French newspaper, and found it so compelling that he lifted the basis of his book from the incident. Taking some of the plot pieces from a previous novel he had co-written, called Georges, Dumas set about with his ghostwriter, Auguste Maquette, reconstructing the story of Picard and Alou. And truth be told, he barely had to stretch any of these details. Picard became Edmond Dantes, the protagonist. Lupien was transformed into the antagonist, Danglars. The friends of Picard became additional characters who are complicit in Dantes' arrest. The Chateau de Finistrel is turned into the Chateau de If, the rich Milanese priest becomes Abbe Faria, etc., etc., even details I didn't catch on my last reading, such as like the diamond ring, are included in the book. Of course, at the end of the novel, Dante's redeems himself by forgiving Danglars, but every good swashbuckling tale has to end in a happy ending, right? Can't all end in vicious murder? Now, if you're like me, 
This whole tale sounds like complete and total nonsense. I mean, there's like no way this could be true, right? Immediately, I set about trying to find as many holes as I could in the narrative, and it really wasn't that hard. There are numerous inconsistencies in Pouchette's account, some of them extremely basic. For example, the first name for Picard changes from Francois to Pierre halfway through the piece. Same thing with other characters, such as Mar Marguerite turning into uh, Therese. At one point, Picard speaks, but earlier he had been gagged. And there's no record of anyone named Picard in either the Finistrel prison or police records currently in the period between 1807 to 1811 when he would have been held. And honestly, a lot of the details just seem too good to be true. I know that's not exactly a great historical argument, but honestly, there's like just enough looseness to the plot that it's like it was left intentionally vague to make it difficult to track. And difficult it is. The Paris police prefecture suffered a fire that destroyed much of the archives in 1871, leaving Pouchet's six-volume series one of the most important documents for historians of the Paris police, and also, therefore, just about the only source for most of the destroyed material, including the Pierre Picard case. That at least explains why there'd be no surviving police record in today's archives. And there's certainly good reason for these inaccuracies. Pouchette died before the volumes were fully published, and this incident was published as The Diamond and the Vengeance in 1838 as a compilation of his surviving papers. Basically, they were publishing a first draft composited from his notes, which naturally were pretty scattered. Of course, one of the editors could have fictionalized the notes and added some flair, publishing it under Pouchette's name, but Pouchette probably didn't want it published in the original publication of the volumes in 1828 on purpose. You see, Pouchette did not publish any work on the Duke of Rovigo, one of the people he mentions in the account, the guy who arrests and imprisons Picard in 1807 for nothing but hearsay evidence. Pouchette did not like Rovigo. He skewered him, and in the 67th chapter of his volumes, published posthumously as a despot, quote, focused on punishing Napoleon's political enemies, both real and imagined, end quote. But he wouldn't want to implicate him in such a mischaracterization of justice in 1828, when the volumes were first published. I mean, first, 1828 is when the letter first even appeared in the prefecture of police's hands, so there's a good chance it didn't even make it into the records in the archives. But even if it had, some French historians believe that the Duke would have retaliated against Pouchette. By the time the account was published in 1838, both the Duke and Pouchette were dead, so neither party would have really cared about the publications on account of, you know, being dead. Furthermore, Pouchette states that many of the police records had disappeared, especially if they involved spies. Again, unsurprising for the uh, Napoleonic police. And the Chateau de Finistrel kept many political prisoners' names off their registers with, for the exact same reason. So there's quite a bit of reason that it's not as simple as one might expect to just write off the Pierre Picard case. And, most importantly, many historians and commentators have found the small details that are clear add to the chance that this is a true account. As V.N. Zemtsov states in an article on the Diamond and the Vengeance, quote, a number of details that the researchers found later confirm the veracity of what was published on behalf of Pouchette in 1838. End quote. For example, clergymen were not common prisoners in the Chateau de Finistrel, except several arrived between 1811 and 1813, some of them wealthy Italian cardinals and aristocrats. 
Street names and quarters that are mentioned fit precisely the locations Pouchette describes. And in the time between 1838 and 1871, when the police archives burned down, I found no mention of any biographer, commentator, historian, or the like expressing any doubt in the story. That itself is of note, because during this time French writers had a heyday making false biographies and true stories, but they were swiftly debunked by contemporaries in literary journals and newspapers. It's unlikely that someone like Pouchette would write a false narrative, and even more unlikely that no one would have caught it. This is what I meant when I said it is hard to separate the fact from the fiction sometimes in history, the truths from the lies. In this case, this is one of those historical mysteries that will probably remain unsolved. But it's also one of those mysteries in which the importance lies not in the truth, but in its cultural influence. Like we talked about in the beginning, Western historians are often concerned with history as a science, rather than history as art or as literature. And sometimes, that's what matters more. Not to say that we shouldn't try to separate the fact from the fiction far from it, but in cases like this, it's the influence that matters. Because the influence of Pierre Picard on literature is widespread, it's impactful, it's his legacy to humanity. Without Picard, we wouldn't have one of the greatest novels the world has ever read. Whether it's based on fact or on fiction is something that we may never know. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. 